Hello, church. If you would open to John 19. John chapter 19. Uh, we will turn again to verse 25, which we were looking at last week. We will look at the same passage again and see a few more things. This is God's Word, verse 25. I'll read through 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother... And his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. So, Father, we have before us a historical event. This really happened. And you have preserved it for us 2,000 years later. Not just to know what happened merely, but that as was just prayed, Lord, that we would be conformed to the image of this man who hangs on this cross. That we would be like Him. That we would think like Him and care like Him and love like Him. Lord, we do pray that You would use Your Word to conform us to the image of Your Son. Even the character that we see in Him on the cross. And so Lord, do this for Your name's sake. Do it for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I, um, I get into the text, I want to say a few things just on the, on the front end about our approach to studying the Gospel of, of John. Two reasons uh, for this. One of them is um, some of you have been here since we started John 2016, uh, and you've sat through most of the sermons. Um, You've gone to city groups weekly. I didn't calculate and do the math. Somebody can do that later. That's hundreds of hours, okay? Hundreds of hours of teaching just in the book of, uh, of John. And um, if you're going to devote that much of your time to this, you should know that you're hearing it right and I'm teaching it right and we should think about this. Um, the other reason I bring this up is because uh, following last week's sermon, I had at least four questions. I think that represented many more questions um, that I got. I love questions. Please keep sending those. Um, I really do appreciate them. I think it means we're Bereans. We're listening carefully to the Word. But I don't typically get four after a sermon. So after I did, I, I talked with Pastor Kent and, and just tried to think, um, is this the hearers, a problem with the hearers, or a problem with the preacher? And I concluded, probably a problem with the preacher. Um, I need to be more clear. I was not clear uh, enough. And so I want to say some things on the front end that will hopefully bring a little bit of clarity, uh, just some general things. So what is expository preaching? Okay, that's what we're doing through the Gospel of John. What, what do we mean by that? I mean preaching should explain the meaning of a biblical text as the author originally intended to communicate it. So God is the author, and he's working through a human author, in our case, John. And John has a particular meaning, and God has a particular meaning, 
And I don't determine that meaning as a preacher. That meaning is in the text. It has been preserved for us. Uh, The job of the preacher is to not only say what's already been said, to say what's in the text, but to make sure you see that what I'm saying is really in the text and not just something that I'm seeing. Because if I just get up here and I say, hey, I've seen this, and hey, look at this, and then you think, oh, well, the preacher said to do that and to look at that, I lose all authority in preaching because now you're having to just trust me. You've got to be able to see that it's in the text, that this is God's words, uh, that he's speaking them through John, and that, uh, that we're getting it right. And so a p- expository preaching is the preacher expounding or drawing out of the biblical text what is really there. It's not bringing into the text other things that aren't there. It's pulling out of the text, expounding, drawing out the meaning that really is in the text. So that's what I'm supposed to be doing when I'm up here. And if I'm not, uh, I expect to be called into question. Or if I'm not making it clear enough how I'm coming to my conclusions, uh, I expect questions will arise as they did. Um, now, it's also helpful to say uh, a few things about types of exposition because there isn't just one way to exposit. Um, there are a few, and I'll break them into just two categories. Uh, there's modern expositions. Uh, modern expositions tend to move really fast. Uh, I, I would say that they're mainly aimed at breadth, and so working through books of the Bible quite quickly um, you know, take a, a chapter like chapter 19, you hit it in two, maybe three weeks. Sometimes just one week, you cover the whole chapter. A lot of expositions are doing that, and uh, there's a time for that. We did that with Galatians, we did that with the book of Daniel, we did that with First and Second Peter, we did that with Acts, we did that with Nehemiah. We've spent a lot of time doing kind of modern expositions that just move quickly. Uh, there's a place for that. Um, but there's also another type of exposition, which we might call classical exposition, And uh, this tends to move slower and then try to press into the text or draw out of the text depth. Um, And that's what we've been doing through the Gospel of John. And I will, I I think it's worth mentioning, this isn't just a classical type of preaching that nobody does today except for us. Um, Steve Lawson uh, preached, I think, seven years in the Gospel of John. John Piper did about seven or eight in Romans. I mean, there's modern preachers that are doing... Uh, this type of classical approach to exposition. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that's on that back wall in the foyer back there, um, one of my great heroes in preaching. I think he spent like 60 sermons just in John chapter 1. Okay? Um, Expositing, not bringing things in, but pulling things out of John chapter 1 for 60 weeks. Okay, so... um, There's value for both of these, and you go, well, how do we figure out if we do a modern exposition or a more classical exposition, a kind of a slower or faster approach to moving through a text? And the word that I keep coming back to is profitability. The Bible says that all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is profitable. But then listen to how Paul talks about this in Acts 20 to the Ephesian church that he pastored, he said, I did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. Teaching public and and house to house, and so he's teaching the whole counsel of God, and there's some discretionary 
um, work on the preacher's end to say, what's most profitable? I want to teach the whole Bible. It's all profitable, but some things might be more profitable for us right now, this week, right? And so each preacher, as Paul did with the Ephesians church, uh, Kent and I sit there on a weekly basis going, do we linger here a few more weeks? Do we press on? You know, we're praying through that. We're, we're trying to discern all of those questions, but it comes back to profitability. So we're probably never going to linger on, you know, some historical genealogical site or how many, uh, how far is a stadia in terms of measurements. I mean, we're, we're, we're not going to spend three weeks on that. Um, we're not going to spend uh, all this time on genealogical descendants of Simeon or Reuben or something. There's people who devote their scholarly lives to that stuff. We're thankful that somebody thinks deeply about that, but we're not going to, as a church, linger for weeks on some of these things because of the issue of profitability. And that there's some things that are just more profitable for worship, for sanctification, for training in righteousness, and some things that are less profitable. And that's why we lingered in Romans for a few years and why we're lingering in the Gospel of John. Additionally, uh, when studying John, we need to remember the issue called harmonization. The harmonization of the Gospels. So John is unique. 90% of what's in the Gospel of John is not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 90%. Um, Additionally, John is only 21 days of Jesus' ministry. Roughly three weeks of his ministry. I mean, this is a a zoomed-in few weeks of Jesus' life packed into the Gospel of John. And so um, you'll notice at times there's certain things that he omits that other Matthew, Mark, and Luke would include, and vice versa. So here's an example. In John 19, uh, we have the two thieves on the cross. And all that we have in John is this. They, uh, there they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. That's it. So if you're just reading the Gospel of John, you don't know that Jesus actually talked to these people and that one of those people is going to be with us in heaven. We just know that he was standing there or hanging there between two thieves. Why wouldn't he mention that? Um, I think it's because God didn't want to give us four identical copies of the Gospel, but four harmonizing accounts of the Gospel. Um, I remember the first time I ever dealt with this issue of harmonization. Uh, I was in a, a New Testament class. Beware if you ever take a New Testament class in a secular university. Okay, It's a whole different thing than in a Christian university. But um, this professor, day one of the class, said, my goal is to, to turn all you Protestants away from Christianity. I mean, day one, that was his goal in the class. And the main way he tried to do that was studying the Gospels accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and saying, look, John's saying something that Matthew isn't. Look, Matthew's saying something that Mark isn't. Look, Luke says this, and, and he's trying to point out what they would call textual variants. And he was saying this like it was a problem. Now, he was right that there are textual variants. He was wrong that it's actually a problem. It's not a problem. It's a validation that we're getting an actual historical account. For example, okay, this is a, maybe a helpful way to think of it. If after the service is over, out in front of Palafox here, uh, a wreck occurs. Somebody gets in a wreck in front of the road here. 
Some of you may uh, watch that or be eyewitnesses to that wreck from the right side of the parking lot, some from the left. Some are walking out the front door here and see it. Some of you are in your cars about to pull out and it was right in front of you. And if everybody wrote down your eyewitness account of that, you would not be saying the identical same thing. Some of you would point out uh, how the car went out to the median first and they sped up. Others of you would just say it was two cars that collided. One of you would point out the colors of those cars and the other person not point out the colors. Somebody might point out when the police arrived and others not. You see what I'm saying? If you were to see 50 years later all these eyewitnesses' accounts and every one of them was identical, you would say, hmm, seems like they just copied each other. But if you saw all of them talking about the same event, but from different angles, now that seems more believable. It seems like a real eyewitness account. And that's what God has preserved for us with all four Gospels And I think there's something to be said about the fact that we're just studying John. And we want to focus in on things that John wants us to focus on. And so, for example, Pastor Kent mentioned a few weeks ago that it says Jesus bore His own cross. Well, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't say that. They say Simon of Cyrene bore Jesus' cross. That's not a contradiction. That's the full picture. Jesus bore his cross, and then at one point, Simon came up and helped. We get the full picture. And we need to always read uh, the Gospels as a harmonized account. uh, God speaking through human authors, and each author contributing something unique and having unique aims in what they're trying to communicate. So, all of this leading up to where we're at now, we have Jesus on the cross And we have seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Seven things that He said. John gives us three of those that are not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Three unique things that Jesus said. And I'm just not rushed uh, to fly through these. Um, Pastor Kent said something to me this week that hit me and I thought was helpful uh, along these lines of what I'm trying to explain here. He said, John Mark... um, You know, I just spent two weeks, because Kent just preached, uh, two weeks studying the Gospel of John. And I I felt like I was getting to know him, John, as an author. The themes that he draws out, how he makes his points and articulate. I felt like I was, in a literary way, getting to know John. After two weeks, he said, you've been with John for six years. Six years. You know, when you're with somebody for six years and know them that intimately and study, and then you come up here and do what I'm trying to do, um, I've got the synoptic accounts in my mind. I've got Old Testament background and Greek words being used. I've got the words that John's using and the themes that he's using and all this. I've I've spent almost eight years of my pastoral preaching studies with Johannian literature. Because not only the Gospel of John, but Revelation and 1 John as well have spent much time there. So, I know John in a real sense. And then I have to synthesize everything down to 40 minutes and then be like, hey, you know, here we go. And, and things can get overlooked. Certain things I might assume we get that I see and others may not. And so, um, I'm going to do better to try to make clear points I'm making and where these come from. 
But let me say one last thing on this. Um, there's a, there's a, passage, uh, a passage in Psalms 119, verse 30, that's kind of a, a guide for me in preaching. It says, the unfolding of your word gives light. The unfolding of your word gives light. And so if I understand what preaching is, that as I unfold as a preacher, as a preacher unfolds the word, new light should come from the text that you didn't see earlier. Right? You, you, you come in here and you read Jesus passing off Mary to, to John and you're like, okay, seems pretty simple. And then I'm like, hey, let's unfold that a little. Let's dig a little. And then new light, it, it begins to get clear what's really being communicated here. That's, that's what we're attempting to do. Now, I can't think of anything more profitable for us at this point in our church than to push everything else we could study away and, and just go to the cross of Christ and just sit there and look at the cross of Christ as John gives it to us and ask for light and ask for understanding. I mean, our sign out there says, the cross church. We better understand something about the cross uh, if we're going to put that in front of our building. Guys, what happened on Golgotha's hill? What happened on Golgotha's hill? I, I, I really believe that what we're seeing here, Jesus raised up on this hill of Golgotha, is a fulfillment of Psalm 24 that says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? I think Jesus is fulfilling that. And I, I, here's how I learned that and why I believe that. The first time I was ever rebuked, it won't be the last time, first time I was ever rebuked by another pastor on a theological issue uh, was, I think, this one. Um, I was in a room with others and some other pastors, and uh, somehow Psalm 24 came up, and uh, I started saying, yeah, we need... Holiness, clean hands, a pure heart, and I, I forget, I was very passionate. And, um, and this pastor, you know, I was 24, 23 or 24 at the time, uh, this older pastor said, you don't actually think that passage is about us, do you? It's about Christ. And it was one of those moments where you just, you know you're wrong, and you just sit down and <laughs> humble yourself and take it. And... Um, Guys, who else could ascend the hill of the Lord? Who else could stand in His holy place? Who else has clean hands and a truly pure heart but Christ? I do think in a secondary sense, we are to ascend also. But Christ paved the way. This is ultimately about Christ. And we need to know what happened on this holy hill. You know, under the old covenant, uh, God would tell Israel to tell their children, make sure your children know what happened on the hill of Sinai. Make sure they understand what happened when Moses ascended that hill. In the new covenant, how much more do we not only need to teach our children what happened at Sinai, but on Golgotha's hill? Golgotha's hill is far more significant. 
And it's not just because of what he accomplished there. That is obviously true. But also what he said. And not just what he said, but when he said it. This is six hours he's being suspended in midair on this torture tree, rejected by all. Anything that comes out of his mouth at that moment, the context heightens it. It's, it's not the same. Is, you know, Jesus saying, you need to forgive, uh, and I forgive, sitting on the Judean wilderness on the Sermon on the Mount saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's different than hanging on the cross, looking at your killers and saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's the same thing being said. The context changes and heightens the power in which it lands on us. You know, it's one thing um, if Jesus, a few months before the crucifixion, said to John, kind of pulled him away after a Bible study and said, hey, do you think when I leave, you could care for my mother? I mean, that's nice. That's responsible. That's honoring. It's a different thing altogether that he's hanging on the cross Enduring the worst suffering any human has ever endured physically, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, and then looks down and says, John, care for my mother. That, that changes how we hear it. And, and I like to ask weird questions of, of texts and things like this to try to draw out the meaning. And the question I was, I was asking myself this week is, did Jesus procrastinate? Why didn't he deal with this earlier? Was it that he looks down and he goes, oh, I just completely forgot about Mary. You know, I'm her provider and taking care of her. And I forgot to, John, could you take care of my mother? Did he procrastinate? Did he forget? I think we'd all say no. And we know this for other reasons as well. John 11, remember when, when Lazarus was ill? And they said, to Jesus, hurry, Lazarus is going to die. He's sick. Please come. And then it says in the text, he waited two days longer before he even went so that Lazarus would be dead in the, in the grave for four days. Did he procrastinate? No. He was orchestrating. He, he had a plan. When we see Jesus passing off Mary to John from the cross, I think it, it's intended to, to communicate things about Christ to us. Like He's not self-absorbed in His suffering. Like you are in your suffering. And I don't mind saying you instead of us because I think it, it works. We are like that. And our suffering. We tend to get, who's going who's gonna to care for me and my suffering? Does anybody notice me? And look at Jesus and His suffering. What's He doing? He's thinking about His mother. It's meant to highlight He's not wallowing in self-pity. Why would God allow this injustice? I've done nothing wrong. There's no indication Christ is even thinking of Himself at all. 
In fact, the whole gospel shows that he does everything in lockstep with the Father. I do only what is pleasing to the Father. He's not thinking about, what do I feel like doing today? Who's going to pay attention to me? He's thinking about the will of his Father. He's thinking about the remaining prophecies left to fulfill, which we'll get to next week. He's thinking about his bride. Those elect saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. Not just as a general whole, but as individuals whose names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. There's layers of intentionality in Christ's mind as He's hanging there. There's multiple motives at work in His heart. It says that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. He endured the shame for the joy set before Him. The joy of being with His Father. The joy of fulfilling the work the Father gave Him to do. The the joy of being with His bride. And then somehow in the midst of all of this, He's selflessly thinking about the individuals right in front of His eyes. Can we not see the heart of Christ being mocked, being laughed at, being killed, and he's not praying in precatory prayers? Father, kill them. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I mean, don't miss how ready his heart is to forgive. That he turns to the criminal next to him who shows an ounce of faith. When you go into your kingdom, Would you remember me? And then Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And and how personal is that? Today you will be with me in paradise. He's not just throwing out verses or, or themes or some sort of doctrine. He's talking to people personally. On the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., the last six hours of his life, he's not just hanging there trying to quickly pass the time so that he can die and go to glory. He's ministering to people, he's loving people, he's caring for his mother. He's not self absorbed with the physical pain, the psychological turmoil. I mean, any one of these things would crush us. Would would leave us just unable to think about anything but how terrible it is. And he's somehow in the midst of all of this, looking at his best friend John and saying, Behold your mother, which I think is an act of love for John, as well as for Mary, because John, think about what John's going to do for the rest of his life. He's going to minister to the churches about Christ. He's going to write the Gospel of John. He's going to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's going to write Revelation. You think it might be beneficial to John to spend time to live in the same home as the woman who spent 30 years with Christ? You think Jesus didn't have that in mind? What a gift to John. I don't even think we could call it a burden. But what should we learn from Jesus Caring for his own mother. And I think the first thing we learn is that the first table of the law never hinders obedience to the second table of the law. What do I mean? 
Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength never contradicts or hinders you unable to love your neighbor as yourself. In this moment of dying, Jesus is doing this for the glory of God. He is loving God, worshiping God, giving Himself fully to God. Perfectly, first four commandments of the law. And it's not stopping Him, that Godward vision is not stopping Him from obeying the the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The first of love your neighbor as yourself commands. The second six. I really want to make sure we get this. This is, in many ways, you could say the foundation of our theology is built off of this reality. That you are not hindered as you go all out for Christ. Say, I'm going to give my body as a sacrifice to Christ. Love Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not making you someone who ignores people. We get that? A church that goes, we're all about Christ. We're here for God first, not people. That doesn't mean we neglect people. It means we can better love people. This is how Jesus operated. This is how the law works. This is how uh, we are to operate. Jesus is displaying this for us as He's dying For the glory of the Father, He is explicitly obeying the fifth commandment to honor His mother. And this is why I I will continue to do this, and I mean this lovingly, but I'll correct anybody who says something along the lines of, I'm too busy with work or family, and I don't have time to focus on worship or obedience or all that spiritual stuff. It's like that person isn't understanding how the categories work. They're not thinking like Jesus. There need not be conflict between worshiping God and caring for your family. Love God and love for neighbor don't contradict. Honoring your father often looks like practically honoring your mother. Physical mother. Honoring the father often looks like, if you're a child, honoring your father and mother. Submitting to and obeying your father and mother. A a radically God-centered view of life will not cause you to ignore family. Rather, it will help you to love family. Living for an eternal God doesn't mean you can't 100% live in the moment here on earth. I hate when I hear people talk about being so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. The categories don't fit Scripture. It was never a problem for Christ. And He doesn't expect it will be a problem for us. I, I think a lot of Christians are unfruitful because we spend too much time either worrying about what could happen in the future or wallowing in guilt and regret about what did happen in the past rather than just Focusing on caring for the people right in front of us. Let me say that again. Many Christians are unfruitful because they're so worried about what's going to happen in the future or what already happened in the past that they are rendered unable or unfruitful in ministering to those right in front of them. And this passage, I don't know what you see here, it to me is screaming out, Be present. 
Deal with what's before you. You see that with Christ. He, he's handle your family before you save the world. Jesus is about to save the world, but he handles his family first. And we live in a day, guys, and y'all know this, everybody wants to be an activist. Everybody wants to fix every problem in the world from their computer or phone, right, at 3 a.m. And then wake up at noon, and I've solved it. I've put a Facebook post out, you know. All this done. I've done my part. Um, there's a generation who really feel it is our job and responsibility to fix everything out there uh, that we're either unqualified to fix or unable to fix. And we have really strong opinions about things out there in the world and a lot of apathy about things right in front of us in our domain of responsibility to which we will be held accountable. A lot of passion about all the things wrong there. What about your marriage? What about your children? What about your work relationships or your relationships with extended family? The things that you, people you actually deal with, your own local church. It's very easy to get passionate about things that really don't touch us many times. You know, if anybody had a properly ordered life, it was Christ. I wanted to call that and let that be our main focus. A properly ordered life. If anybody had one, it was Christ. He wasn't out just pursuing his own dreams to the neglect of his own flesh and blood. He's hours away from taking on the full weight of God's just wrath. He's entered into the event for which the universe exists. All of human history exists for what he's presently experiencing. All the prophets spoke about this. He became incarnate for this, and yet he's still thinking about his mom. Does that teach us anything? That we never have an excuse, no matter what, how important something is, to legitimately neglect to love our neighbor, especially our closest one. Um, there was a day when missionaries used to labor in foreign fields and leave their kids behind at boarding schools. I know preachers neglecting their family, or as some would say it, sacrificing their family on the altar of ministry. It's wrong. There's women, even in ministry work, off doing Bible studies and serving the needy and busy bodies in Christian activity to the neglect of their own home. There's men who, in the name of providing financially, fail to provide spiritual, fatherly nurture, discipline, instruction, training of the family, the kids, love for a spouse. Guys, I know Jesus isn't married. I know He doesn't have any physical offspring. But His care for His mother is instructive. It really is. 
He doesn't neglect her to change the world, and he doesn't care for her and then neglect the world. You don't have to choose. The Bible doesn't force us to choose. Now, please don't hear me saying don't have ambition for things out in the world. We should have ambition for a lot of things that are big things. Um, But we better get the immediate things dealt with faithfully. I think Jesus was actually able to change the world because he dealt with 10 million little things right in his domain, faithfully including rejecting of sin, including righteousness, because he knew how to deal with what was right before him each day faithfully, he was equipped to take on the world. He knows what it looks like to make the best use of the time, to live in the moment, because he knew how to handle the mundane things of life. And you can apply this principle of being present to many things. So employees, you know, with your jobs, um, there's a lot of employees that will get a job, and this is, I I forget where I read this, Forbes or something at one point, that many employees, as soon as they get a new job, they're already putting in applications for the next job. You think that might hinder, you know, how well you serve the current employer you have? I don't even need to say much about phones. I know they connect us to the world, but could it be possible that they disconnect us from those closest to us? I've talked to a a few teachers in public schools lately, uh, some in younger grade schools and then a, a university professor, and both of them said that in the last 20 years or so, they've seen this shocking shift in young people that have devices that are on their phone all the time and they're genuinely concerned about the coming generation because of their inability to deal with real things like real people, real responsibilities, real deadlines, anything in real life because everything is done via online and it's Look how intentional Jesus lived his whole life. I mean, this is just one moment in his life, but his whole life is this. And he cares not just about our eternal salvation. I think this shows he cares about our temporal well-being. Not equally. He cares about our eternal salvation far more, but he does care about our temporal well-being. And we should care like him for others' temporary well-being. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, it says a married man must care, how to please, care about how to please his wife, and a wife must care about how to please her husband. So you can't just go all out for, for God to the neglect of your spouse. In other words, Paul is saying, God is saying through Paul, your interests are divided. You have to think about how to care for your spouse. 1 Timothy 5.8 shows the same thing is true for children with aging parents. It says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he is denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. The immediate context is widows. Mary's a widow. 
Joseph would have died sometime before this. Jesus was the oldest son, and the burden of responsibility to provide for the family would have fallen on him. You know, we had a brother uh, in our church who recently left the church to move up north because his parents are aging. And he prayed through this. He was growing, wanted to be here at the church, wanted to be in Pensacola, but uh, his parents were in need and he felt very much responsible to go and try and care for them. And we blessed him toward that end. And that's going to look different for different people in different situations, but the point is this. Eventually, the roles reverse. The child returns at the end of life what the parents gave them at the beginning of life. That's how it should work, at least. And, and you say, what does it mean to honor your parents as an adult? Well, it looks financial, usually. According to the biblical word, that is, um, the word honor used in 1 Timothy 5, when it talks about honoring uh, a widowed mother, for example, the same word for honor is used in the same chapter regarding elders, and it says those who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. That's financial. So yes, you should honor your parents as an adult verbally and how you speak to them and things, but it's largely a financial way that you honor them and care for them in old age. We know this is true also because of Mark 7. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who are neglecting the fifth commandment to honor their father and mother because of a law called Corban. He says, for the sake of your traditions, you neglect the commandment of God. What commandment is he talking about? The fifth commandment to honor your father and mother? You're not caring for your father and mother financially because you're giving your money to the temple so that you don't have to care for your family financially. And Jesus rebukes them for that. So Jesus is modeling on the cross obedience to the fifth commandment. And he didn't have money. He didn't have a house. He didn't have land that he could have given her. He had John that he could pass her off and care well for her via John. And so G. Campbell Morgan said, the cross baffles us to see that the Christ of Golgotha has eyes for human sorrow, cares, and provides. And so Jesus isn't just saying to you, church, be present. He's showing you what it looks like. He's showing us what this looks like. To be at work 100% there for your coworker who's struggling, not just to earn a living. To be in class, not just to pass a test or to, uh, to pass and, and, and move past that class, but to minister to the actual student sitting next to you. A parent, to have children and then put away cleaning, put away the phone and get on the floor and play with them. Or open the Bible and read. Or sing together. Or just do something intentional. Husbands, talk and listen. And serve your wives. Consider your spouse more significant than yourself. That's what Jesus is showing us. Live like that because Christ lived like that. And and here's the last thing I want to do to, to transition this. All of the moral imperatives in the New Testament are rooted in the historical realities of Calvary. Let me say that again. All of the moral imperatives in the New Testament, 
are rooted in these historical events at Calvary. I want to give you three examples in closing. Romans 15, verse 1 says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Listen, for... You could translate it, because Christ did not please Himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then it ends, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So so literally the way that Paul is teaching them is, here's what love looks like in the church. It looks like Jesus hanging on the cross at Golgotha and then looking over to the thief next to Him. And saying, you will be with me in paradise. That type of one another intentional ministry. He says, because Jesus thinks like that, lives like that, you are to live and think like that. That's how, that's how we're counseled. In 1 Corinthians 15, or in Romans 15, there's a humility in the way he's dying that we're to imitate, not just learn about, but imitate. And I'm not guessing this. I'm not, I'm not assuming this or guessing this when I say that. Um, I'm 100% sure that we are to look at Jesus dying on the cross and think the humility of what He's doing there is saying to me, I am to be humble like that. I know that that's how we're supposed to read the narrative because in Philippians 2, Paul tells us that's how we're supposed to read the narrative. In Philippians 2 verse 8 says, He humbled Himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you go, yeah, but how does that relate to us? Right before that, he says this, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself in the point of death, death on the cross. You see how he's teaching. You look at Jesus on the cross and you go, what he's doing there, how he's suffering and caring for others in the midst of his suffering, that's the call on my life. The last verse, uh, Romans 14. I remember the first, first time I read this as a new Christian, it threw me off. It was a weird verse to me. Romans 14 verse 7 says, None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Next verse. For to this end Christ died. we got to... Sentences and the way they put them together matters, right? We're, the, the last four, to this end, Christ died, modifies, helps us understand, okay, I'm not living for myself, or I'm living for the Lord, I'm not dying for myself, I'm dying for the Lord. Why? Because Christ lived and died for the Lord. Guys, as we go to the table... Um, This isn't a time to think about yourself. I don't know how else to say it. 
It's just, that's not what this is for. This is a time uh, to remember that we don't live for ourselves. We don't die for ourselves. We live and we die for Christ. Because He lived and He died for us. That's what the table reminds us. So those of you who are believers uh, in Christ, who have received Him by faith and been baptized into His name, uh, come to the table remembering those things. Rejoicing and finding deep comfort in those things. Uh, For those of you who do not know Christ and will not come to the table, in that red bulletin, uh, there are some meaningful prayers that you can pray through. Um, If you would take a moment and let's all pray. Father, we just prepare our hearts, Lord, not to think about ourselves. That is a frustrating, discouraging endeavor. We know we fall short. We do pray You grant repentance where it's needed. But Lord, we pray that You would turn our minds to You who lived and died for the glory of the Father and who lived and died for us. Lord, we pray that You would help us to feel how personal You are as a person. That even now, sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, glorified, resurrected, you are personal. You care not just about the church at large, but you're each person, each member of the body. You know our struggles. You know our needs. You bled and died for every one of our sins. And we're grateful. Lord, remind us of these things and help us to believe them as we come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.